Thanks, Johnny. Um, if I haven't met you before, my name's Chris Evans. I'm the assistant pastor here, um, and I'm going to um, bring God's word to us now. So why don't we pray uh, for his help as we uh, hear from this passage. Father God, we thank you that you are a speaking God, that you have revealed yourself to us, and that when we open up your word and read it and hear it preached, we have that joy of hearing your voice. But we pray now for your help. We recognize that we find it hard to hear so often, hard because uh, our hearts we know are, are, are sinful and we know that we can struggle uh, to hear your words for us when we would maybe rather uh, hear other things. And we find it hard because we are small, we are finite, and we are hearing the words of the creator who, as we were thinking of in that song earlier, is, is all wise and has, has made everything and knows everything. Lord, you, your ways are above ours, and so we find it hard to hear and understand. Please help us now, we pray, by your spirit to listen. Help us to have humble hearts to hear what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we shouldn't be here. We shouldn't be here this morning, humanly speaking. Now, that's not just because it's cold. You might be thinking I'd rather be somewhere else. But there are lots of reasons why maybe we shouldn't be here, humanly speaking. Just think for a minute. The, the beginning of the church, um, these little bunch of disciples uh, in, a, in a room, there's not many of them, and it starts with a bit of a mess, doesn't it? Because in a few hours... They're going to desert Jesus, abandon him to die. And then even as they began to follow him again, as the church grew, there were still persecutions galore, people being ridiculed and, and killed. There was false teaching rife, wars and, and scandals in the name of Jesus. Hundreds of years later, thousands of years later till today, and some might say that things haven't got loads better. We still hear of teaching that is not true to the gospel. We still hear of scandals and abuse of power within the church. That's just thinking outside of us. And we know, don't we, that so often ourselves, our own lives are a mess, filled with sin and struggle too. All those reasons, we might think, we shouldn't really be here this morning. What confidence can we have that God's people won't just shrivel up and die, shrivel up and give up. Humanly speaking, our struggles, our suffering, our sin should overwhelm us. That's a nice cheery place to start, isn't it, on a Sunday morning. But we're going to see this little prayer said 2,000 years ago can give us an unshakable confidence for our faith and for God's mission. Because when we come to scripture, well, we're not humanly speaking, are we? We are hearing the words of our Heavenly Father. And at the heart of Jesus' prayer, we see the heart of God for his disciples. And in some sense, for all his followers, for, for us too. We're going to dive into the middle of this prayer, John 17. And amazingly, as the disciples are, are sat round, they get to overhear Jesus praying for them. I think that's an amazing thought, isn't it? But perhaps even more amazingly, we have these words written down. We get to overhear Jesus praying to the Father. 
Not only are we hearing a prayer, there's lots of those in the Bible, but we're given an insight into the heart of the triune God for his disciples. What the Son prays to the Father. This feels like very holy ground. We're just going to zoom in on two key things that Jesus prays for them. Firstly, that they would be kept in the name of God. And secondly, that they would be sanctified by the words of God. Firstly, he prays they'd be kept in the name of God. Verse 11, if you look down halfway through, he prays, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. Wonder what, what kind of protection do we think he's talking about? Personal safety, some kind of heavenly body armor. If you are a Marvel fan, there might be some kind of special suit that they might be hoping for. Um, well, Jesus already told them back in chapter 15, you're going to face hatred, you're going to face violence from the world if you believe in me. And he tells them in verse 15 here, my prayer is not that you take them, that's the disciples, out of the world. So this danger zone that they're facing, they're not going to be taken out from it. No, this isn't a prayer for personal safety or comfort. If you've got a church Bible, you might have a, a little footnote uh, at the bottom. It says another way of translating those words is keep them faithful to your name, to the Father's name. More than a prayer for physical protection or comfort, this is a prayer for protection of faith. It's a prayer that they would keep going, that they would keep trusting in Jesus because of all that lies ahead. He knows that they're going to face a lot, so they'll need help to not be swerving in God's love for them. They'll need keeping in his name. And it's important, I think, to remember this keeping is not a kind of grit your teeth and bear it. You know, I wish I wasn't a Christian, but I'll I'll hang on anyway. Um, No, he gives a couple of markers here. It's marked by, by unity. He says it in verse 11. Uh, So it's something that they do together, and we'll think a bit more about that in the the rest of the prayer next week. But also in verse 13, being kept is marked by joy. You see, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Staggeringly, one of the marks of being kept going is having joy in God. Not just any joy, Jesus says, my joy. Jesus' joy, knowing the Father's love. And not just a smidgen of it either, did you see? The full measure. In the face of opposition from the world, Jesus wants his disciples to be kept in faithfulness to him. And so to experience the joy of the depth of love between the Father and the Son. Now, what greater thing could he long for his disciples? Such a precious prayer. But is this asking too much? How can the disciples be really confident that this prayer will be answered. I think Jesus gives them uh, two reasons for confidence. Firstly, because of God's plan, and secondly, because of God's name. In verses 6 to 11, Jesus is basically saying, I'm praying for these guys here in the room with me. But as we read it through, you might notice he describes them in a kind of particular, rambly sort of way. And he kind of lays out a few steps And he does this so that we can see, since eternity past, 
God's plan has been to choose a people for himself. And if he's chosen them, then he will keep them. If we go from halfway through verse 6, we see step 1. He says, they were yours. In some sense, they already belong to the Father in eternity past because he'd chosen them. Step 2, you gave them to me. In a sense, before Jesus came to earth, God's people were already an eternal gift from the Father to the Son. It's kind of mind-boggling, isn't it? And just as a tangent, isn't that an amazing description of God's people? You just think, what kind of gift do you get God, the one who has everything, who made everything and knows everything? Well, the Father gives his Son a people for his name and for his glory. They were yours, you gave them to me. But what does the son do with this gift? Well, at the beginning of verse 6, he says, I have revealed you, Jesus has revealed the Father to those who you gave me out of the world. The son reveals God to them. And what's their response? Or verse 6 at the end, they have obeyed your word. Or verse 8, they knew with certainty that I came from you. They believed that you sent me. The fact that they truly believed showed that they truly belonged, that they were the fathers, that they were the sons. Yes, humanly speaking, they've only heard and responded to God's word in the last few months or years of their lives. But Jesus is helping us to see, although their response is a human one and a real one, their salvation rests on something even bigger. The triune God's eternal plan was for them to be in Christ. In verse 12, we see God's plan won't go wrong. He says, none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. Judas, he's talking about Judas here. Judas is falling away, suggests, well, he never truly believed. So that revealed that he never truly believed belonged perplexing as it might be and there's so much more we could say about this even judas rejection isn't outside the realm of god's plan here god's plan gives them confidence that they will be kept now god is not like my parents here i love my parents a lot uh, but when i was a wee lad i got lost in a museum when we were out in Paris, not that that makes it sound like we just did a day trip there, doesn't it? We were, we were on a holiday there. Uh, it was partly my fault, I should have stayed put, uh, but my mum and dad needed to carry my sister in the pram, and so I got left somewhere for two minutes whilst they went downstairs and, and, were, and were brought up. And those two minutes felt like an eternity, and I was quite a, quite a fragile little boy, um, so I started blubbering when they didn't turn up for a while, and promptly a museum staff person came along and, and I was taken to the kind of reception desk as a kind of piece of lost property. And the tannoy rings out, Mr. and Mrs. Evans, would you please come to reception, please? Sorry about the French accent. We have your son here. God is not like my parents. They lost me for a few minutes. But God's plan says that for all who are in Christ, for all who belong to him, God will not lose them for a single second. The disciples can be confident because of God's plan since eternity, but also because of God's name. 
Did you see verse 11? Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. And then Jesus says in verse 12, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. Now, this isn't a sort of magic spell that somehow the sort of name protects, protects his people in some kind of magic way. Um, if it was, it'd be quite tricky to know which name we're talking about because there's lots of names for God in the Bible. But no, the idea of God's name is often representative of his whole character, his goodness, his power, his faithfulness, his justice, his love, his mercy. Being kept by his name means being kept by his character, by, by who God is, by God's godness, if you like. And that's why God's name is often described as a safe place to be. Proverbs 18 verse 10 says, The name of the Lord is a fortified tower, a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. I wonder if you've ever had someone um, promise something but not deliver on it, maybe. If you have, then you probably take their word a little more lightly afterwards, don't you, in the future. You might not be so willing to trust them with something. You might not trust their name, as it were. God not keeping his word or his plan is contrary to his very name, to his very character. If we cannot take God at his word for who he is in his name, then he would cease to be God. His name would be Muds. But his name, his character, does give us confidence that he'll finish what he starts, that he'll keep who he calls. And did you see in verse 10, God says that he is glorified in his people. His name and character are shown to be true through them. And one of the ways that he gets the glory is by protecting and keeping his children faithful till the end. So Jesus' prayer gives us confidence that he will keep his children because of his plan and because of his name. And I wonder as a disciple, as you're listening to Jesus praying for you, what an amazing thing, how you'd feel as you are prayed for and as within that prayer are woven in those reasons to be confident. What an encouragement it would be for you to hear the heart of God to protect you and keep you. As you hear God's plan that he is willing to keep all who are his. As you hear the encouragement that, that that's you. As you are reminded of God's name and He's not just willing to keep you, that that's not just his plan, but that he is able to because of his character. What an encouragement for the disciples to hear that. But I wonder, how do we hear those words? I began by saying, humanly speaking, we shouldn't be here today. But we are. And in one sense, that is because of the truths in this prayer. Jesus prayed that they would be kept. And that is in line with the work of God in choosing and saving in the first place. Even the disciples' temporary desertion of Jesus in his darkest hour, even their sin and struggles, that would not be enough to thwart God's plan. And they would go on into the early church and reach the world with the gospel. And in some sense, we are here today because they were kept. And down the line, we benefit from their ministry. 
But in a secondary sense, we are also there because God has kept us going, aren't we? In a sense, as well as we hear this as God's heart for the disciples, it's also God's heart for all who belong to him. If we too belong to the Father and the Son, then we can have confidence in his plan, then we can have confidence in his name, that we too will be protected and kept. We know this because it's not the only place we see it in the Bible. It's not the only place we see it in John's gospel. Jesus has already said back in chapter 6, verse 39 and 40, this is the will of him who sent me, the will of his Father, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. So the disciples are in this little room. Jesus has just been telling them that he's not going to be with them much longer. As the disciples face their saviour's departure, as they face opposition from the world, what a relief to hear these words. And as we too face a life where we are waiting for Jesus' return, as we face opposition from the world in a different way to them, but, but nonetheless an opposition, what a relief to us too. That their perseverance, that, that ours, it's not dependent on our ability to keep going but on God's ability to keep his own in the Lord Jesus. His plan to remove all obstacles in Jesus and the honour of his name being kept, they depend on it and so they guarantee it. Now earlier this year we had um, the Olympics. Um, I don't know if you enjoyed watching some. It was a bit harder this year because of the time difference, wasn't it? Normally I'm, I'm properly into it, but I was reminded of the powerful story of Derek uh, Redman, who was an English sprinter, um, 400 meters, and in the, he was tipped for a medal in 1992 Olympics, and he made it to the final easily. And as the gun went off, he was off to a promising start. But about 250 meters in, his hamstring tore, and he was in agony on the ground. But he was determined to finish the race. He got up and started hobbling, but the pain was excruciating. Then, out of nowhere, um, someone comes in from the side and runs on to hold him up. Who is it? Well, it's his father. He's barged past security, and he grabs him on his shoulder. And together they hobble, bit by bit, through to the finish line. It's a very powerful story. Now, the Christian life is often described as a race, and it's one that we long to reach the finish line of. And humanly speaking, there are times where we just think we won't. Sin and suffering and doubts and discouragement are too real. Now, this story is far from a perfect illustration, but what it does show is a loving father who won't let his child not get across the finish line, in spite of all the pain, in spite of all the opposition. And in our Heavenly Father, we have a much better, a much more perfect picture of that, don't we? One who has done everything in sending his son Jesus to get us to the end. He doesn't remove all hardship, but he does promise to keep us going. And that in Christ, none of the obstacles will separate us from his love. There's a, a hymn that uh, we 
don't sing here, but maybe, maybe we will do at some point, called How Firm a Foundation. And the last verse uh, has these precious words. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Kept in the name of God. But as well as praying that, Jesus prays, secondly, that they would be sanctified by the truth of God. In verse 17, Jesus prays, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now the word sanctify uh, means kind of set apart as, as holy. And often when we find it in the Bible, it's used to kind of growing in Christ-likeness. Um, and it comes up three times here in, in these last couple of verses. But I think it's more referring to the idea of being set apart for, for service, for a particular task. And he leaves us, I think this leaves us with a couple of questions. How are they set apart? And what are they set apart for? Uh, so first one, how are they set apart for God's service? How are they sanctified? Two things. Firstly, they are sanctified, verse 17, by the truth. Your word is truth. They're sanctified by the word of God. As we read through verse 14 to 16, Jesus is reminding us again that, that these disciples, they're going to stay in the world, but that's not who they belong to. No, they belong to their heavenly Father. So if they are in the world but not of the world, what is it that sets them apart? Well, throughout this whole section, we see that the disciples are the ones who've been given God's word. At verse 8, I gave them the words you gave me. Verse 14, I have given them your word. They have the word of God, the truth about Jesus. And that is what sets them apart. Because they have the word and they believe the word to be true. And that is also, verse 8, why the world has hated them. They are set apart by the word of God, but they are also set apart by the work of God in Jesus. Uh, did you see verse 19? For them, I sanctify myself, that they, the disciples, too may be truly sanctified. Now, it's a little bit funny trying to get our heads around this. We learn here, Jesus himself is sanctified. So Jesus himself is set apart for God's service. And that service, verse 19 says, is for them, for the disciples, for his people. Now, given what's going to happen in a few hours' time in John's gospel, I think he's probably talking about what Jesus is about to do. He is about to die on the cross. But there's a link here between Jesus' sanctification, Jesus setting apart, and the disciples. Jesus says they can only truly be set apart for his service because he has been set apart for theirs. They can only be set apart for him because he has been set apart to serve them. I think that means that all that they do, all that they do in service of him flows first and foremost out of what he has done for them on the cross. That means that they can serve him knowing that they're not serving him to earn anything. They're not serving him to, to win any favors. No, they are doing it out of already 
being given everything they could possibly ever want or need in the Lord Jesus. He has already died for them. They're set apart by these two things, by the word of God in about Jesus and the work of God that we see in Jesus. That's how they're set apart. But what are they set apart for? Well, verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them. They are set apart to be sent into the world. Now, you don't normally send something without a purpose, do you? Um, I've had a book set apart um, on kind of my coffee table for about the last four months that I've been meaning to send to my cousin for his birthday, which is probably just going to be a, a kind of Christmas present now. Uh, maybe that saved me £10. Um, sorry, James, if you ever listen to this. Um, but the purpose of me sending that book is not just that it gets moved from Winchester to the Chiltern Hills. No, it's for him to have a gift. There's a purpose in sending it. What is the purpose of the disciples being sent, though? I wonder if you spotted, there's a kind of parallel here between the sending of Jesus and the sending of the disciples. There's something the same about the Father sending Jesus and Jesus sending them. And we're not given loads more than that. But I think Jesus means that how they are set apart, remember, by God's words and by God's works in Jesus, how they are set apart is also what they're set apart for. They're sent to tell people of God's word and tell people of God's work in the Lord Jesus. After all, isn't that why Jesus was sent to reveal God the Father? He brought God's words and to rescue people from sin and judgment. He did God's work. Staggeringly, these words that, that they are sent as he was sent tell us that God's salvation plan in a sense, it doesn't stop with the sending of Jesus. Yes, everything rests on his work then and his ongoing work. But his salvation plan is also about the disciples being sent into the world so that people could hear the good news. Mission is a word that you might have heard. It's a word that Christians often use to talk about the role kind of we play in spreading the gospel. And mission simply means sent. Ah, but this prayer shows us what is the scope of mission. It is that the heart of mission is found in the hearts of God. First in the sending of the Son, and then in the sending of the disciples. So Jesus prays, sanctify them so that they would be sent. Well, humanly speaking... We shouldn't be here, but each of us is here in some sense because this second part of the prayer also was prayed because the apostles, the disciples were sent and generations after them were sent into the world to tell of the words of God about Jesus and the work of God in Jesus. Each of us here will have heard of God's words and God's work in Jesus because somebody was sent because somebody told us and that's not just a really long game of Chinese whispers that's happened over hundreds or thousands of years but it is the divinely guided sending of the gospel God's plan 
And in a sense, just as before, though this prayer doesn't just reveal the heart of God then, but it reveals the heart of God now. And in a sense, it's not just referring to the disciples, but also uh, to us. If we too believe in Jesus and trust in his death, then we too have been set apart by the word of God. We too believe it. We too are set apart by the work of God. Our, our role, our place in salvation history is very different to the disciples. But in a sense, we too are sent on the mission of God. And that doesn't mean that we have to go to some far-flung country, but that wherever we are, we are those who are sent. I wonder, is that how we think about stepping out the door on, on a Monday morning or going to visit family, catching up with friends? Jesus prays for two things for his disciples, that they'd be kept in the name of God and that they would be sanctified by the truth of God. But as we close, I just want to highlight, I think these two prayers aren't just sort of stuck one after the other by chance, but there is a link between the two. I think Jesus' second prayer is one of the ways that he answers at the first. What is it that sets us apart when we come, what, is, what sets us apart when we come to trust in Jesus, rather, is also what keeps us going, isn't it? So the word of God about Jesus and the work of God in Jesus, they're not just given to us for reaching the world, but they're also God's means of keeping his church going. That's why they are things that, that guide everything that we do here at Redeemer. The word of God keeps us going as, we, as he continues to speak through his word today, as we are fed and encouraged. The work of God in Jesus keeps us going. As the Spirit takes all Jesus has done for us in his redemption, his prayers, and applies them to us now as we find assurance when we confess our sin, as we find welcome in a father when we feel ashamed, as, as our, our kind of hope is renewed that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The second prayer is one of the ways that God answers the first Humanly speaking, no, we shouldn't be here. But Jesus' prayer reveals the heart of God to keep his own and also to claim his own. And amazingly, this isn't the last prayer of Jesus for his followers. No, Jesus is ascended now and still intercedes for his own at the right hand of God. And the Father continues to answer those prayers as Jesus' ministry continues. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn, Arise, my soul, arise, which picks up on that theme of Jesus' ongoing prayer for us. And some of these ideas of being kept and set apart by God's word and God's work. So I'm going to close by just reading two verses of that now. The Father hears him pray, his dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his son. His spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God. To God I'm reconciled, his pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba Father, 
cry. Let's take a moment to reflect and then I'll pray. Father God, we thank you for this precious prayer and we thank you for the encouragements that we see within it. We thank you that this prayer reveals your heart for your people. We thank you for the confidence it gives us that you keep your people going, that you preserve them to the end and that not one will be lost because of your great plan and your great name and all that you have done in the Lord Jesus for us. And we thank you that you keep us by setting us apart, by giving us the truth about Jesus to encourage us day by day and by the work of Jesus so that we know that in spite of all our sins and struggles, we are clothed in his righteousness and we come to you as those who do not need to be ashamed or afraid, but those who are welcomed and those who are loved. Please help us as we head out into our week to know that as those who are sanctified, we are those who are sent and with the word of God and the work of God, be ringing in our hearts and our minds as we, as we seek to share you with those around us too. In Jesus' name, amen.